Asians are kind of natural mediators, especially in race issues, right? Because we're not really like the oppressed minority archetype, but you're not a white person either. You're kind of in this liminal zone where people don't really know where the hell they fit. Our viewpoint is not being considered in this literally black-white divide. Honestly, our viewpoint is actually extremely important. We automatically are outside of the polls. And in the polarization and vitriol, a lot of nuances around issues of identity and so forth were lost. We also saw a lot of tribalizing divisions and I thought bathmaybe was a particularly relevant metaphor because that aspect of transparency captures the lived reality and gravity that race has in our society, but also not reifying it to such a degree where it can actually perpetuate an actually centralized reality. The more controversial and heated and radioactive the topic is, the more I'm just like a heat seeking, so I just gravitate to it oh, like yeah. flight. The more heated the conflict is, the more potential there is for transformation. So that was actually one of your last sessions there, because that was actually one of my first sessions. Oh, that's that, funny. Like, Swapped out one Asian guy for another Asian guy. <laughs> Again, the first exclusively yellow face episode in the sense making community. Watch this, rewind it, send it to all your people. Welcome everyone to another brand new episode of Noetic Nomads. I'm Albert Kim and no, you are not seeing double because with me today is actually not my twin, but rather a profound futon philosopher. He's been a student of integral theory for nearly half his 28 years on earth, who synthesized his experience with spirituality as son of a Buddhist minister and as attendee of Ananda University with that of progressive left sociopolitical theory and practice to co-create projects such as the Growing Down podcast with Jeremy Johnson and Matt Hudkins, the outreach project Perspectivepedia, which aims to listen to voices all across the political spectrum. And now his PS, the resistance, the diaphanous anti-racism framework, which proposes a nuanced and holistic middle way to bridge the divide between the polarized camps on racial justice to move us all toward the more beautiful world we know in our hearts as possible. Nomads, please help me in introducing an integral rapper, Meta Goat Whisperer, potential future presidential candidate, and someone who may be yellow on the outside, but teal on the inside. I can be speaking about the one and only Ryan Nakate. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ryan. Dude, that was literally the best <laughs> introduction I've ever heard in my entire life. You made me sound way cooler. <laughs> so I hope I can live up to that in this in this. Uh, oh my, dude, I mean like just you being you, I mean like trust me, like my whole goal with this is, is bringing amazing people like you on and actually not pumping you up, but letting you see how amazing you are. So again, I could have kept going on and on, but thank you so much for coming on again, Ryan. Oh, thank you. Thank you, my friend. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's my pleasure and really excited to see uh, what comes out of this discussion today. Mm. Yeah, definitely. All right. So um, I don't know if you recall the, the first time that we came across each other. Like, I mean, like, we're kind of like in like these realms, but like the first time I like, do you like, what is the first time you recall uh, encountering me? Because I think maybe we might have different recollections. You know, what's funny. So I was watching your, your talk with Aaron Rogerson. Yeah. And I think the he was talking about, it was a Stoa session where you, for, where he first saw you. Um, I forgot the topic. It was like on some controversial gender-related issue or something. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first time I, I saw you and 
in one of the calls. And that was actually one of the last STOA events I attended live and participated in because oh, I just got it? busy with other things. So I, I remember I remember seeing you there. Um, and I don't think I saw you. I don't remember seeing you before that. So, wow, you nailed it because that's exactly the first recollection. I actually recall for whatever reason, I recall exactly what happened. It was the Ariel Friedman session. Um, what was it with? Uh, yes. What was it? Dangerous, uh, dangerous, dangerous space. space. Yeah. yeah. Dangerous space. And I believe that the topic pick was like, uh, what is a female or, or something to that effect? That sounds and, about right. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, I remember specifically you joined the chat and I was like, oh, dude, a, a fellow yellow face is here. That's, that's the first time I've seen that. And then uh, I mentioned Starcraft. <laughs> for oh, some reason, right. <laughs> I specifically remember I somehow in my like little wild rants I mentioned Starcraft and then you're like oh yeah Starcraft and it's like so like that's uh, yeah so that's definitely the uh, first time I recall seeing you so it was at the Stoa so yeah so again again we're on the same so that was actually one of your last sessions at there because that was actually one of my first sessions so I guess oh, that's that, fine. Like, we, we, they swapped out one Asian guy for another Asian guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I had fit in the quota, you know, like yeah. Exactly, right, right. <laughs> What's funny about the StarCraft, I remember the StarCraft comment too, because I I typed in the chat, I was like, Oh, I'm not good at StarCraft because I'm Japanese. I don't I don't have Korean uh, genes, so yeah, I'm, I'm naturally disqualified from uh, StarCraft and League of Legends. Uh I mean, like here's the thing, like I know I'm Korean, but I'm actually terrible at starcraft like i just don't have you know the apm i'm like Brrr, they gotta like they have like measure apm you know how many actions you can do per minute like oh, right, 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 right. it's like after a while like if i'm like taking like drinking a lot of caffeine or something like that energy drinks like i could do that for a while but then after a point i was just like f this man like this is too this is too much work man like i don't have that sort of crazy like drive like the, like koreans are crazy competitive which i'm sure yeah. we'll get into later about what is driving this this korean stuff but yeah i mean like i uh so I was, I went into your history and like uh, into your story. I was like, wow, I mean, you had some like very unconventional uh, uh, upbringing. So I was wondering if I may ask uh, what your parents did for a living and that how that impacted the path you've taken in your life. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you, you are correct that I have had a rather unconventional uh, upbringing and background. Uh, my mom is a Buddhist minister, a Zen, Soto Zen uh, Buddhist minister, hmm. Um, in uh, Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii in Kona. She runs a, a temple called Daifukuji Soto Mission. And so I actually grew up in this Buddhist temple, um, not a residential monastic community, just my, you know, me and my family lived in the temple, but it's a community of about 200 members. Um, it's been around since 1914 um, was when it was founded. Mm. Um, so it's, it's been around for uh, uh, quite a long time. And so I was very much immersed in, you know, Buddhism, uh, Eastern thought, and had, you know, wonderful relationships with uh, other community members who were interested in studying and practicing Zen Buddhism. And my dad is a uh, teacher. He teaches AP U.S. history now in uh, California. Oh, I so see. My, it was interesting because my dad is, his actual uh, academic background is in philosophy and theology. And, um, you know, and uh, the New he's a New Testament scholar by training. Mm. And uh, my mom is more focused on um, Buddhist practice and that kind of thing. So I had that kind of interesting East-West confluence going on there in my mm. family, interesting, you know, interesting uh, dinner conversations. And then that kind of later naturally segued into my interest in integrative frameworks. Like we're kind of bringing these you know, East-West frameworks together in a, in a kind of integrated whole, um, which kind of naturally led to my interest in things like integral theory, now metamodernism and other sense-making movements. So kind of where, mm. how I got to where I am today. Mm, yeah and like so i mean obviously with your last name uh i'm sorry if i butchered it like how do i pronounce it? nakade yeah nakade 
Nakata. And um, so uh, I believe you mentioned to me that your father is, of course, Japanese. Uh, is your mother is also Japanese or? Yeah, my mom, my mom is also Japanese. Um, she's, I think, like a third or fourth generation uh, from Japanese uh, from Hawaii, whereas my dad is from Japan. Mm, okay, interesting. So wait, so that's actually something very interesting. So you said your father was uh, a New Testament scholar. So that's, that's, that's very interesting because uh, like when you think about like Christianity, that's not really big in East Asian communities. Like, for, I mean, I would say the most like Christian, uh, like East Asian kind of, kind of grouping is actually like Korean, like South Koreans mm -hmm. are, they're kind of crazy. They can be kind of like crazy right wing <laughs> nationalists. I believe like our history is, uh, is part of it. Um, but I um, mean, so how did, so your, how did your father get into um, those kind of studies? Just curious. Yeah, that's a great question. So I've actually asked him that. That before and he moved to Arizona when he was 16 from Japan uh, as an mm. exchange student, you know, high school exchange student. And I think he had some run-ins with Christianity, either with his uh, host family or just in, you know, the, the general culture of Arizona. And mm. I think that was kind of like a, a tension that he was grappling with or wanted to explore more deeply. So he majored in religion and undergrad at the University of Hawaii, where he met my mom, and okay, then had got two master's degrees in theology. Um, as a way of kind of exploring that and you know he's not christian but he he had a lot of interest in um the new testament and also kind of the, the philosophy and theology uh you know guys like uh kierkegaard and you know um, yeah. other other christian existentialists like uh, paul tillich uh gabriel marcel so that's kind of his background that he he uh, came from then eventually went to teaching uh u.s history and again the same thing of be, not being from uh, america but having you know as a japanese person really cultivating an interest in American history and U.S. politics and social issues. So we, we talk a lot about, you know, all these things that we'll probably get into today, you mm, know, race yeah, relations yes. and, and all that juicy stuff. Mm, okay. Yeah. And um, definitely uh, like to start getting into this. There's a lot of juicy stuff we could talk about here. So again, um, you uh, reached out to me. I It was on Thanksgiving. And uh, so, like, uh, I, on that day, I, my, uh, my, my video on Game C, the, the framework for Meta Utopia, was published on Bruce Alderman's channel, The Integral Stage. And uh, you reached out to me and you're like, hey, Albert, I mean, I like this. And I was like, wow, really? Because, I mean, like, I had no idea what the reaction was going to be like. Because I was just like, Bruce, I mean, like, the story was um, I was on, I, I mean, I'm active on the Game B Facebook to some extent. And like he he posted his uh, Utopia, a video from his Utopia series about how people, uh, about how like all these different thinkers, like especially from the integral realm, but also like uh, Michelle, B Michelle Bounds and Jeremy had his video on that uh, series. And then I was like, wow, this is really interesting because I had been thinking about a meta utopia, just slightly playing with it in the background. I had done like no real work on it, right? So I just mentioned to him, oh, Mick, um, can, can, can you put these on podcast? Because I love to listen to these, but like, you know, like I, I don't have the time to like watch all these on video. He was like, oh, sure. And then he was like, wait a minute, you're doing something on meta utopia. And then he's like, do you want to do something? And now, mind you, I had done literally nothing. Like I literally just like, I had just not a thought of the term, but I had done no actual work on any of this game C meta utopia stuff. But once he, he offered that to me, I was like, you know what? I'm not supposed to be doing this, but I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to run with it. And so like a couple of weeks later, like within like a, a week, I just put everything together. And that's how the entire framework was mm. put out. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, so uh, you contacted me and then I was like, oh, that's very interesting. And, and, and we had a little chat and then maybe, you know, and, and you, you told me like, and you know, yeah, I mean, I like your video. And also like, I liked your uh, little, um, 
your post you made on Discord about like Japanese and Korean relations. And perhaps one day we could talk about it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure, definitely. Maybe we could have a conversation. Later on that day, I see you post in Medium the DAR framework, right? And I'm like, where the hell did this come from? So I'm like, if you could uh, um, just like let our audience know and let me know, because I'm very curious, like, what was it? Like, can you tell us a story behind DAR's creation and like what DAR even stands for? I mean, for those who don't recall what it stands for. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, DAR stands for diaphanous anti-racism, mm. which is quite a, quite a funny, you know, weird mixture of words. Yeah. And, you know, diaphanous is, is a word that I actually learned from uh, Jeremy Johnson, you know, the Gebser uh, mm. aficionado and um, Gebser, Gene Gebser, who is a, a integral philosopher, one of the kind of original integral thinkers, um, used the term diaphaneity to describe uh, the integral structure and one of its key properties, which is this, this quality of transparency or translucency that comes along with you know, be, being able to see through things and in doing so rendering kind of wholeness of reality, right? By, by having all of these different perspectives or structures of consciousness rendered transparent, we're able to see through them, but also acknowledge their existence in a kind of larger tapestry of wholeness that we're, um, cultivating that we're concretizing mm. right and so i thought that was um a helpful metaphor to apply to uh race and and the general sense-making conversation around race mm. which mm. i have found particularly frustrating and aggravating as have a lot yeah. of people including in sense-making spaces because i still felt like there were a lot of gray areas that needed to be carved out and in the polarization and vitriol a lot of nuances around issues of identity and so forth were lost and I still saw a lot of tribalizing divisions and around the topic without really an integrative way forward that was both affirmative and cultivating a positive vision of what, uh, what I thought was a healthy and positive way of, of thinking and talking about race would be, and also concrete actionable steps where we can start implementing a new way of thinking. Mm, and I yeah. thought diaphanity was a particularly relevant metaphor because it captured that, that, that aspect of transparency captures the, the reality, the lived reality and gravity that race has in our society, but yeah. also not reifying it or, or um, fossilizing it to such a degree where it becomes so real that we actually, it can actually like perpetuate racism or, or being overly race conscious, right? Can kind of mm, lead yeah. to us forgetting about the larger systemic structures and backgrounds that create race. And we mistake the construct that it is for an actually centralized reality, which I think is dangerous and, and uh, kind of regressive or counterproductive. Mm, and so yeah. the Daphne model was kind of my way of both adding it to say by seeing through it, that implies we acknowledge its existence, but also rendering transparent allows us to see beyond it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like, again, like uh, I'm, I'm totally with that. And it kind of does, I, I could kind of see, like, I wonder if like, maybe what I spoke about in the game C video and in, in the game C uh, video is what resonate with you uh, was part of it. Maybe perhaps the fact that I did bring up race and then I even brought up uh, gender and like all the, uh, the, the lack of maybe contextualizing within the game, game B framework, because again, like in the in this whole sense making space, when it comes to topics, you know, you, you call it the traditional, maybe progressive, you know, social justice topics. It's just, it seems very like reactionary, like reactionary centrist, like anti-woke mindset. 
And like, even like uh, when you go to the, like the more meta crowd to me, and like, uh, this is actually something that I'd be interested in getting into. The, the, the thing about meta is you, you're kind of going out from like, you know, 10,000 feet up and looking at it, but it's kind of like, you're also kind of like disembodied and you're removed from it rather than what you're saying with like diaphanity is you're actually embedded within the context and you, and you see it. But again, you're not reifying it. You're not concretizing it. You can see through it. So like, it's, it's very interesting. So could you uh, go into basically what the, so what, what do you see? How do you frame the current uh, like racial, uh, like, the, like the, what was it? I, like the, the racial camps in uh, America when it comes to justice? Oh yeah. So in the article I lined out, you know, the, one of the tensions, the, one of the core debates, which has become quite a polarizing debate is, what is the end goal of racial justice? Is it mm. uh, color blindness, where we don't see race or 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 really, um, you know, it, what the colorblind camp says, it, quoting Martin Luther King, is you know judging people by uh, the concept of their character, not based on skin color, and favoring instead more like modernist values of of, of universal humanity, where mm. people are treated as individuals and not stereotyped in terms of group identity, right? And then on the other hand, we have the race conscious school which says that you know, the lived reality of race is so great because, or, or so, um, it's something we need to really acknowledge and really understand deeply because there are so many systemic and historical injustices and inequities. They produce enough of a racial difference or distinction that these distinctions need to be captured or else you're losing uh, some, some important differences, uh, material and psychological differences that have mm -hmm. come about of these greater societal forces and injustices and inequities, right? And so, my, and so my way was trying to go between those two and, and be able to see through race and not, not have race become a dominate, dominating or totalizing heuristic that occludes you know, people's unique individuality or interior mm, psychological yeah. reality, right? We're not steamrolling the um, unique individuality of a person with collectivized, unnuanced sociological um, generalizations, mm. but we're, we're, we're able to still take those into consideration and complexify our understanding of identity and how our individual perspectives are shaped and molded by larger background contextual forces that are usually invisible at first glance. Mm. And so it's yeah. really, again, it's a way of trying to integrate the best of both of the camps and move the conversation forward in a way that explicitly cautions us about um, not overusing a racial lens too much and instead nesting it in a larger framework of complexity for a more holistic analysis rather than just attributing everything to uh, racism or racial issues. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I really like this framework and like over time I realized that like, I may actually be like, I don't know, like a proto integral or kind of integralist, like on the inside, because there are like, they're like in, in the sense making space is like um, the problem with the sense making space is that they're the sense making space. It's just like, Oh, look at us. We're the, you know, we're the big brainy types who understand everything and we're above everything. That's the whole, that's part of the, of what I see as problems with the whole meta framework. You actually think that you're above everyone else, both in terms of like, the, the viewpoint as in like going outside the viewpoint outside the context but also thinking that in, there's some sort of hierarchy that oh we get it we're smarter than everyone else and again like in my recent uh episode with gabriel who's also like a, a game c rapper i don't know if you, <laughs> you're a rapper as well an integral rapper so a game c rapper integral rapper and we talked about like 
like all these people who preach that they're they're game B is like they're ninety nine percent game A. It's like they think they're smarter than everyone else. They think they're above it when really, I mean, like they have these same blind spots as everyone else. And like I've literally come across people like in some of these sessions where it's like we're we're talking about blind spots. That's right. It's like we're specifically talking about how we have biases, and they say, oh, um. I don't have that problem. It's like, I'm less biased than most people. Literally, literally, like, what is that? Like, I forget which bias it is. It's like literally the biggest bias is thinking that you're not as biased as everyone else. And it's just like these people in these spaces actually think that. And that's actually what I brought up in my Game C video. It's like, uh, it's like, we can't think that, you know, we have, we objectively, you know, know everything that, you know, that these are like universalist principles. That's very colonialist thinking. That's very, uh, I believe, orange thinking in the integral framework, right? So um, I was just wondering, like, if you could go a little bit into, like, what integral is as opposed to the, the meta view? Because again, like, within, like, my sense-making space that I'm kind of coming out of, it's like, if the meta view is very popular, especially with the STOA. But then I, I saw that you, you had a little exchange where you talk about maybe like a meta-modern masculinity, such as like a, with Aaron proposes, and then make it like maybe a diaphanous masculinity. So what would be the, what was, what is like the distinctions between more of a meta versus an integral and or diaphanous, how would you say? Sure, yeah. Well, I think it's a little tricky because um, within, within the large umbrella of integral, we have a whole bunch of different thinkers, right? The most famous one is Ken Wilber, I would consider Wilbur to be a meta type of thinker. Okay. And, and so what I, what, uh, and Jeremy Johnson has, has a great article about this on, um, I think it's called Liminal News, Liminal Magazine. And he talks about the meta, I, I think the meta, the a meta perspective, uh, jumping out of the context to take a 40,000 foot, uh, you know, surveying the, the field from a higher place can be very helpful, right? Because, mm. because when you're really in the trenches, in the mud, you miss a bigger picture. And so stepping back can be helpful yeah. to, to, to get a bigger you know, picture. Um, and so what's, but what tends to happen is you're, you're privileging a kind of abstraction as you were alluding to, right? There's mm. a kind of disembodiment. And, and I think mm. you were getting, you were talking to uh, Aaron about this on, on your talk was, mm. um, and how that relates to masculinity and, and you know, what is the role of embodiment and so forth, right? And so what, one of the side effects is you can get lost, very lost in the head, constantly trying to jump out of context and constantly trying to abstract out of, lived you know yeah. lived reality and a kind of uh in, in the imminence of, of lived reality and so what gebser the other integral thinker proposes is his model is not his idea of the integral structure is not a meta jumping out but a staying within and seeing through something mm, and so it has a more embodied connotation or, or feel or ethos to it right it's mm. not a, it's not privileging mental models and abstractions that abstract and, and categorize reality from a 40,000 foot view, but rather staying in the imminence and staying in that liminal space and seeing what emerges or, or arises organically. And, and what Jeremy says is someone like Nora Bateson's work and complexity yeah, theory yeah. is actually quite consonant with Gebser's idea of integrality and diaphaneity, right? It mm -hmm. is, you know, Nora Bateson in her warm data work is uh, trying to dance with multiple contexts as they implicate yeah, yeah. over each other and inform each other and, and understanding reality in this kind of fluid processual way. But she, she warns very explicitly over and over again, not to overly, you know, reify the abstractions, right? Reify the meta abstractions to the point where they become dissociative. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and again, why I have a particular fascination with the, the race conversation is because I think race is something that 
is a, is a mainstream issue that very much explores this tension between um, the lived embodied experiences and the larger sociological, political, historical abstractions that mm, form those experiences. And so that's a kind of an interesting, as a kind of sense-making uh, leverage point to, to explore I this see. tension, I, I like what race can, can bring to the discussion potentially. Mm. Yeah. And again, a uh, mutual fan of uh, Nora Bateson, uh, like her, her talking about like uh, trans contextuality. Mm-hmm. I really resonate with that. And it just like I like I get the sense that like you cannot be a fan of Nora Bateson's work and be a bad person. I'm like, if you're into Nora Bateson, I'm like, you right. probably you're, you're, if you're not, uh, uh, you know, if you're not on the way, if you're not a good person, you're at least on the way to being a better person. So, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a fan of uh, Nora Bateson. And yeah, and, and and you mentioned like how you think race is a like uh, important leverage point. I'm like, yeah, because like and I was about to I was about to ask you is like what exactly is it about like like race? Like what is, what why was it? Uh, why do you think that it is such an important leverage point? Because like you mentioned, I believe that you use the metaphor of like maybe like acupuncture. Is like if you like if you attack if you maybe you know approach race, it could sort of maybe trickle down and have maybe systemic effects that like can translate to other realms. Like, can you go? Why exactly race do you feel is important? Yeah, great question. So two reasons, right? One is that it's I just love like you know how we met in that in the dangerous space. I just love super con uh, you know inflammatory. Um, yes. Just just the more the more controversial and heated and you know. Um, radioactive the, the topic is the more i'm just like a heat seeking missile i just gravitate to it oh, like fly yes, to shit yes. right i'm just like you know because i think there's you know also my background is and training as a mediator mm-hmm. and a facilitator involved in conflict resolution right and so every conflict the more heated the conflict is uh the more potential there is for transformation right there's some mm-hmm. gold there waiting to be excavated if if handled skillfully and so i'm always trying to to see what are some of the most explosive uh you know issues in the culture wars that we can really zoom in on. And if we can provide really good sense-making and, and nuance and, com- and inject as much complexity into these subjects as possible, I think it can be a leverage point. And, and usually these issues are issues that strike to the core of our identities, race, mm-hmm. religion, gender, yeah. that kind of thing, right? So that's kind of one, one subject of interest. Uh, the other thing, the other reason why I think race is helpful is because it's, it's really a bridge to what, you know, Hanzi and, and uh, Hanzi and it's a metamodern uh, vision calls the divisual, which he got from mm. uh, Jill yeah. Deleuze, right? And the divisual is to me, um, well, well, first I'll say the divisual is basically a, a, an integration of the individual and the collective. It's where it's not looking at, not maintaining that hard dichotomy between the individual and the collective, but rather seeing how they intricately bleed together, right? Mm, we are entangled yeah. with society. We are entangled with background, contextual, um, institutional, historical, political, economic, cultural forces that inform our perspective, attitude, and worldview. But we're often blind to how, how that happens because from our first person subjective experience and perspective, we just think that our opinions and our views are simply the way they are. We don't really have the meta awareness mm, to understand yeah. how those views came into existence in the first mm. place. And as you were saying, what our biases and blind spots are. So I'm, I'm really interested in reframing the conversation and using sense-making around race as its own kind of psychotechnology to decenter the perspectives that we're most attached to because we're blind about how they came into existence in the first place. When you understand all of the, the whole complex confluency of factors that went into creating who you think you are, it's a, very, it's a very Buddhist way actually of looking at things, right? It's a processual interconnected 
uh, relational view of the self and of our of our perspective. And so we'll, we'll take a, a, a race, which is a controversial and inflammatory mainstream cultural culture war issue and use that as a portal into the truly integral, truly Nora Bateson-esque, truly metamodern complexity, the visual thinking and sense-making instead of a downward spiral into tribalism and reactionary uh, politics mm. and more division, right? So that, that's kind of how I've been vectoring into the conversation. Mm, yeah, I mean that. I mean, when you just said, "Oh yeah, yeah," I did. I uh, go into your your background, and uh, yes, you were a uh, a conflict mediation specialist. I find that very interesting, and that kind of makes sense. Why the one session that I caught you in was the dangerous space? Because I'm just like you. It's just like I see conflict. I see a controversial subject. I'm like a fly. I'm fly to shit. I'm like, whoo, yeah. Let me get into it. And like you, actually, I don't know if you recall um, my uh, kind of like rants during that session because I was just speaking. I was going crazy in that session like every 10 seconds someone to say something and i'll just fly out and again like that was the same um that was my first interaction with r in there because what i was saying is like i actually what i what i mentioned there um in my conversation my episode with Aaron was like i did have like sort of i guess uh this 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 approach like i wanted to move past uh gender again the the, the topic that we we're talking about was is you know what is a woman and like you know brought out like is a tra- is a trans woman a woman and i was like you know what we should just move past all this stuff it's like i got the gender blind crowd it's kind of like what you're doing is trying to bridge the divide between you know the the color blind and then the woke it's just like my so my thing was like i was saying like you know what why don't we just move past this just pretend like like gender doesn't exist and then Aaron was like ooh wait a minute he pushed back he's like actually there's something you know very deep you know like archetypal within us that that does embody like this yin yang this masculine and feminine archetypes and then like that helped me to get around to more like what he started to work on later with like the meta modern masculinity and like uh these 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 archetypes so i mean so i mean again it's very it's very interesting that we're both like that and we're not the t- we're not the typical East Asians because uh, you know it's like you know like I just I could go into inside baseball just like we're not so we're not so political right we're not like it, it, I, what I notice especially in like the United States is like when uh, people of like East Asian background it's like when they do get they usually tend to stay out of politics when they do get into, into politics it, it's kind of like either like they're kind of like oh yeah they're kind of like conventional like uh, like 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 sjw's more type or they're like the uh like they joined the harvard discrimination lawsuit <laughs> they're like no why are you keeping us out of it so uh, it's very interesting so i was wondering like what your thoughts on about like how like asian americans or east asian americans in particular and like what like how we participate in like politics and like the social milieu in general Wonderful. Yeah, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Are you familiar with uh, Wesley Yang? Oh yes. Oh, we the, the, the I forgot the, the book. What what book uh, did you just Soul come of out with? Yellow Folk. Yes, yes, yes. I, I read yeah. that. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. He he said he had a really interesting point, which is when I read this, I just laughed out loud because it it so resonated with my experience, which is that Asians are kind of natural mediators, especially in, in race issues, right? Because we're not really like you know, black or brown or indigenous people who, who have, huh, I mean, what did, what did he say? It's like, you've not really looked at it as like the oppressed minority archetype, mm. but you're not a white person either. You're kind of in this liminal zone where people exactly. don't really know what the hell, you know, where the hell they fit. And, and it's a weird thing because 
in some social justice circles, Asians are really considered and treated more like white people and, and having white privilege. Mm. In other circles, Asians are still considered to be people of color, oppressed minorities, who, mm. who you know, where were, um, people should really strive to understand the, the challenges the Asian community uh, faces in America, right? Mm. And what I've always said is, in my opinion, I think that generally speaking, the main issues that Asians tend to care more about are a little higher on Maslow's hierarchy than that, say, the Black community. Mm, yeah, like, yeah. like a lot of Asian people may not feel worried about uh, being shot by the police if they have if they get pulled over for a ticket, but there are other issues of like representation in things like sports or in things like entertainment industry. You know, like the movie Crazy Rich Asians, uh, Jeremy mm. Lin, who I was a huge <laughs> fan of, right? Yeah. And and so I think. Um, yeah, these issues of esteem and recognition and, and being seen as, you know, kind of cool or hip or sexy, right? I think these are more things that Asians care about. Uh, masculinity, right? There's an entire Reddit mm. thread on Asian American uh, masculinity, uh, something that a lot of my Asian guy friends and I have talked about and grappled with ourselves, right? Mm. So um, I, I think I also wrote a piece a while back. I never released it publicly. Maybe I'll, I'll show it to you later. But it yeah, was kind of a definitely. joke, but it, it was called like why Asians are, can be the first uh, or why Asian, you know, people who are culturally Asian uh, can't have a more of a tendency to start manifesting like integral and metamodern traits. Mm, and and it, okay. my, my insight into that was, you know, Asians, I think, have do actually have a lot of traditional values that they keep with them or have internalized from their culture and from their families. Right. I don't know how your parents uh, raised you or you know, how strict they were like doing homework or whatever right but mm. a lot of conservative values are affirmed in Asian culture that's why Asians are actually uh, I think one political pundit said Asians could be like the Jews for the Republicans like, oh, like the kind of minority yeah. group that votes right right personal responsibility hard work mm. and that kind of um, bootstrapping and and you know you know focusing on education and, and not relying on government to take care of you but at the same time still struggling with some of the issues that are advocated for in more woke or social justice circles, right? Wanting representation and wanting some kind of uh, recognition or, or how do Asians as a minority group fit into larger cultural issues and um, diversity and, you know, and also um, other, other factors like, you know, we want to bring in the orange, right? There's kind of like the Kind of tendency to focus on like business or economics or mm, being yeah. financially fiscally prudent and responsible and so forth so so there's a lot of these different qualities i think asian culture is kind of unique in in if they can kind of integrate it together right? if we can really integrate all of these different things and um and not not and, you know in, in doing so kind of mediate the culture wars and some of these mimetic tensions mm. through our own experiences and, and, and cultural backgrounds i don't mm. know if that that resonates with you or makes sense to you at all my God, like, you don't understand. Like I, I, I went into this, like in, in an early episode, like the creation was like the genesis of nomadic nomads. Like, I, I mean, like the, I, you could argue like this started from like, you could argue like this is like an evolutionary process and I'm just like manifesting it right now. But I mean, like, but I mean, like the, the, the more proximal genesis of nomadic nomads was, um, I, I, I again, I did the uh, sense making one-on-one course uh, for Rebel Wisdom and uh, two of my pod mates were, uh, my two pod mates were Robin Lever and Tia. And for a prompt, like, like we would go like into like these 20 minute kind of monologues, right? Where we go into like a specific uh, topic for this time, it was like a cultural topic that I want to speak about. And I specifically talked about uh, the, the, the racial tensions inside the United States and how I, as you know, as an Asian American, East Asian American, Korean American, whatever you want to call it, is just like our, our viewpoint is not being considered 
in this, you know, black, literally black, white divide. And it just like, our, uh, honestly, and how our, our, our viewpoint is actually extremely important because this part of it is kind of in this white crowd. It's like, oh yeah, we understand that. But part of it is also kind of in this black, you know, in this black, you know, frame. And part and part of it is just like, is completely different. Like it's not contained in either of these polls. And it's just, I, again, just like you, I feel like we're natural mediators because we automatically are outside of the polls every time. Like, you know, cause like, for example, I mean, we could go into so many different things, but like, you want to talk about like diversity, you know, just like, oh yeah. Like, you know, let's say like, you know, there's, some, there's a company and there's like, oh yeah, there's like a, you know, like 20% black people. And then the mainstream media is like, hooray. But it's just like, you know, they say some sort of, but then they're like, then let's say there's like 70% uh, minority in like, I don't know, a school. But the majority of those minorities, quote unquote, are Asian. They're like, no, it's not diverse enough. I was like, it's not diverse enough. There's only like, you know, like 30% whites there. It's like, oh, but it's not the, it's not the right kind of diversity. You know, and, and, and that's what I'm like, ah, it's like, ah. And it's just like, and, and that's the thing. That's why, like, this start. I mean, again, like, there's many reasons why perhaps, like, there can be a, a tendency for, for Asians in some context to shift right is because we're, we're not even being considered by this traditional, uh, you know, leftist crowd, right? And it's, it's, and again, it's like, what I want to do is like, I feel like, it's again, like with uh, like what, I guess what Alexander Bard calls the shamanoid role is like, because we're like automatically outside of this black white divide, we can be the bridge that kind of is like, hey, I could talk to you white people. I could talk to you black people. I could talk to Hispanic. I could talk to all these different groups and they don't consider me like, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm inoffensive enough where they can open up. And this is actually manifested in real life. Like I'll be like, I'll be in like a group of like all black people. And then they'll just be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll like, they'll start talking shit about white people. They'll even be like, hey, and they just, and they all start, start talking about like chinks and stuff. And they're like, oh wait, sorry. Yeah, we forgot you were there. <laughs> like they'll just go into it. Like they'll start dissing everyone. And they'll be like, they didn't even realize I'm there. I'm just like, oh yeah, whatever, right? And there's even same thing in the white group. Like they'll start saying all this shit about all this other people, you know? And just, you know, that's the thing. Like, you know, that, and that's a, um, a reality. It's like, when you have a specific group of people, it doesn't matter, race, you know, gender, you know, you know whatever group, people, people are gonna say shit about other people and be more re relaxed. And as an Asian American, uh, because we're in that liminal space, and also possibly because we ha maybe have this reputation of being inoffensive, we're allowed to be those mediators. So yeah, I'm com so I'm completely with you on that, and I, <laughs> and, and it does make sense that actually that is what you're uh, consciously doing as part of your work. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You know, it's it's one of the one of the words in uh, social justice circles called the impact of your identity. And it's just the it's the way that how other people see you and perceive you in, in different circumstances, right? If you're a, if you're a white comedian and you say the N word, that's obviously going to land very differently than Chris Rock doing his bit on that, right? Mm. And so after thinking about that, I said, you know, how can I use my identity to my advantage, right? Mm, Since I know yeah. that I, I hold a kind of liminal space in the in the race wars, how can I leverage that to use to my advantage? And it, uh, this is kind of kind of weird to talk about, but like in in several. Um, uh, anti-racist groups I'm a part of, right? I'm, I'm the only non-white person in the group. And mm. so I, in, that, in that context, I'm kind of looked at as the, uh, the like person of color who's going to educate the white people kind of a role. Mm. And I'm like, yeah. 
okay, if if that's like if if you're gonna kind of give me a special privilege to to lead the charge on that, right? Mm. Then I'm gonna try to give you the most fucking integral metamodern, you know, complex sense making yeah, race yeah. as possible and, and kind of leverage my identity in that way, right? Or mm. if there's a mediation situation happening uh, where race is implicated in the conflict, you know, knowing that I'm Asian and I'm perceived as as Asian right it's kind of how my cultural and how my racial identity lands with these people right how can i use that to um really kind of tone down the tension and and use that to to mediate more effectively especially when race issues come up that were not an original part of the conflict right but if you have two people of different races arguing about something passionately enough identity starts to become a part of it Mm, uh, you know eventually so that that's actually really given me a lot more confidence, you know, really leading into these into these uh, discussions and trying to trying to mediate, knowing how I'm gonna impact the conversation. Mm, yeah, and then like this is something I want to get into. And again, you mentioned that you're part of these anti-racist groups, and that you're the only non-white person there. I think that wait, I think that's uh, that's hilarious. Um, so I was I was curious. Like I actually like read about like maybe your kind of like a strategy with maybe the framing of it of anti-racism so what so what exactly so why anti-racism and what do you think about this kind of anti-framework and and why did you decide to put that into dar mm. you know mostly for clickbait really i mean it is it is i mean um someone did give me feedback like the anti-framework is you know it's still basing itself off of a negative position of what, mm, what yeah. it wants to get away from. And, yeah. uh, you know, I explicitly laid out in the article that I'm generally not really for that, right? Like I want yeah. to be for something and lay out a firm and a vision of where to go instead of saying what not to do. Um, so if I could, if I could change the, the name of it enough to, to be more of an affirmative direction, but also still conveying that it is kind of like, relating to the traditional anti-racist, you know, the mainstream understanding of what anti-racism mm. means. Yeah. So it can be a bridge, mm. right? Because if it's too much of a, a adjacent leap to a new paradigm, I feel yeah, like- I see, yeah. I, that's one thing too. One, another one of my critiques of the sense-making community in general is there's all this wonderful stuff circulating in these very insulated communities. Mm. How do we start to really build a bridge towards more mainstream subcultures? And so this article, the anti-racist part was an attempt to build that bridge with the mainstream anti-racist movement mm, yeah i mean i'm completely with the the building bridges thing and that's exactly actually uh when we're recording this i'm actually holding uh, a big event tomorrow with linking together you know a, a sense-making community but not even just the sense-making community but even the, the like the, the the constituent parts of the sense-making community which are not necessarily integrated right it's like they kind of like eh, they, they interface once in a while but again like like rep wisdom and the stoa and the game b and also like the inter intellect um some outside like like integral thinkers i'm bringing in uh including jeremy i mean hopefully he shows up and hopefully tomorrow is not a disaster we don't know what's gonna happen by the time this is released so again like that's what i'm trying to do is is the bridge and so i see like your strategy with the um with dar with the anti-racism framework it's kind of like yeah we're kind of kind of gonna step this way and then you got all these ar people being like oh ar and they're kind of like attracted into the orbit and then you kind of like trojan horse this stuff on them actually what we should try to do 
it's to build something, uh, you know, more, uh, what is it like a generative as a, as a building something rather than just constructive rather than deconstructing everything, because it's very simple to be anti everything. You'd be like, you know, again, like, you know, a simple example, you could be, Oh, I'm anti Trump. It's like, Oh, you're anti Trump. I'm anti Trump as well. So what are you for? Oh, I'm for Hitler. I'm, you know, just like, okay. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, that's not like, we're, we're in the completely different camp. Like anti just says you're what you're not for. What are you actually for? So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm completely with that. And uh, I guess that's a, that's a clever little thing to try to get them uh, onto your side. And, and one thing that I was interested in, again, uh, speaking of, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're quote unquote categorized as Asian, right? And then you say Asian, but of course, Asian isn't, I have a problem with Asian. I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure you do as well. I mean, obviously you're an integral thinker. You, you realize that, you know, the problems of, of, of labeling something because of course, like, Asia is a continent and there are people like me and then people like you and there are differences between us. Yes, there are differences between Koreans and Japanese white people and black people and all white people. There are differences. And, but you know, there's also, you know, like South Asian, right? There's South Asian. It's like Indians, Indians and Japanese, not only do they look different, they have widely different histories, viewpoints and all that. And you know, talk about, you can talk Russia and all that. So I mean, I'm just wondering, like, even the, the term of, 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 of Asian, I'm just wondering your specific viewpoint, because like, again, when we talk about Asian people, like, if I'm in, a, 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 like, if I'm talking with an Asian person who's like Japanese, I feel very different than if I'm talking with an Asian person who's maybe from Pakistan, you know, it's, like, it's not the same, or like, even from like the Philippines, it's, it's very different. So I was wondering your concept of Asian and how like people use the term Asian, you know, in like America or the world at large. Sure. Yeah, I think I think it really comes down to the the effect of racialization, right? Where mm. Asian, or as in this case, more specifically, East Asian, is a kind of racial category that's assigned or ascribed to people who look like me and you, mm. and so that does have an impact on our own identity and our own sense making about the world. Mm. Um, and versus more specifically, like ethnicity and people specific cultural backgrounds, and then then of course the other part of nationality. Right. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that you're right. Like, like to me, it's kind of like, you know, putting, putting Indians or Pakistanis in the same category is, or, you know, we have South and they, and generally in terms of like the effects of racism towards people of South Asian descent are very different from yeah, uh, East Asian. Right. Mm. And so I think there are, there is, at least for myself, I still have a sense of, you know, mm. racial or cultural solidarity to a degree with you know i have friends you know from india i've been to india that kind of thing i, I also have background teaching yoga and you know kind of going the whole indian oh, spirituality yeah, yeah. route too right but it's it's still not the same in terms of sharing you know like with me and you some of the unique experiences that tend to um affect uh, east asians mm. and so i think i think there's always there's always room for more nuance and more precision and at the same time being aware of the large effects of racialization in the sense that, you know, you're Korean, I'm Japanese, but yet there's still something about being an Asian American or being Asian, right. That, mm. that kind of does capture some kind of commonality, even though we may be mm. from slightly different parts of the world or have different, in some ways too, very different cultural differences between Korea and Japan. And, you know, there's a joke um, I heard in a book by Francis Fukuyama. I don't, I don't know what you think about this because I actually don't know a lot about Korean uh, culture. I don't have any Asian friends who are Korean. Mm, um, but but he said the joke is that a single Korean can defeat a single Japanese, but a group of Japanese will defeat a group of Koreans. 
I, I don't even understand what, what is it? yeah, I, I don't even understand the, the context behind that. So. I think what he was trying to say was that Korean culture tends to be more individualistic than Japanese oh, culture. Oh, I see. Um, of course, I don't think that that's not true. You guys beat us at soccer all the time now, right? But, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, there are, there are a lot of differences too. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, like, you know, Korea, South Korea with the history of uh, Christianity, Christian mm. influence, very different from uh, China, Japan, Mongolia, Definitely. right? Other countries, yeah. right? So there are, there are a lot of significant cultural differences that you know you and I may have in terms of how we were raised or the communities that we were brought up in, but there is still a larger effect of racialization that can kind of meta-categorize us as Asians mm. and, and share a certain similarity of uh, experience as as Asians in America. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like part of it is like I like I understand like the history of like the term even Asian Asian American like I, I forget the exact but it goes back to I forget the sixties or seventies and like some. I believe I don't know if like these Chinese Americans or, or someone they, they they really um push for this term Asian American for us for us to actually be acknowledged as a group and be like hey we're not just like you know like these others like we're actually a quote unquote group and um of course I mean uh, the acknowledgement and the fact like hey like perhaps that we can be a group we can have solidarity and we can if there is some sort of like this like like underrepresentation here we could collectively be brought in because there is this frame of Asian American existing. Um, but of course, like then again, it gets, then it goes to like all the problems that come with that. And actually to an extent, it's kind of unfortunate that like perhaps Indian Americans and like Chinese Americans do very well on like standardized tests because they're just like, Oh, they look, they're all very smart and they're very educated. So like it, it gives us a basis. It, it, it justifies the fact that that categorization exists, even though you don't hear about like people from, you know, Japanese Americans, you know, getting like attacked and shot, you know, because they think that, uh, you know, they're part of Al Qaeda or something. Right. right. But you hear that all the time for people, you know, from, from Pakistan and Bangladesh and India. So it's like, it's very different. And, and like, again, like it's, it, there's a reason for that, but it's also unfortunate. And again, like in the UK, the term Asian is actually reserved for people who are like of South Asian descent of, of Indian and Pakistani. And like, I don't know if they refer to like people like us as more like, I don't know, like something else. It's not huh. Asian. I, I don't know if it's like Oriental or something. So, I mean, like that, that's even an, um, an interesting frame. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, so I actually would like to get into this, uh, this sort of uh, Japanese and Korean thing, because uh, uh, you, you told me about how like, I, 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 I believe uh, this was all prompted by they were asking about movies and still a discord. And I was like, oh, yeah, watch uh, Joint Security Area by uh, I don't, uh, Park, Park, uh, Park Chan-wook, uh, the director behind Old Boy. And I talked about how, like, you know, I talked about South Korean movies. And then somehow it led to my giving this massive spiel about Han, right? About and how like Han is uh, embodied within our cinema and how the history of Korea of how like, I mean, just, I'm, I'm going to give you actually, like, I want to know like your thoughts on my framing, first of all, of saying uh, China is big brother, Korea is little brother and Japan as evil cousin. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but that's kind of how I see it. Maybe at least as a Korean. So I was wondering, first of all, what, I'm sorry I didn't defend you. What do you think about that? I, I I'd have to agree with the Japanese part. I mean, oh, you would. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I unfortunately, um, very ashamed to say so. But uh, yeah, the the China part is interesting because I don't know a lot about how how Koreans feel about uh, China. So that that's interesting to me. I don't I don't have a lot to say about that. But the Japanese part, I definitely can say, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. You know, historically and, and yeah. even presently, you know, those tensions are still very, uh, very prominent. 
Yeah, I mean, it is like, and, and actually, like now that you know, like when I think about it over time, like there is some shadow. I mean, there's collective like national shadows with all these different countries, right? And I think part of it when I when I refer to Japan as evil cousin, there is a shadow aspect there for coming from me because you know of like the the, the colonial the colonial past and even before that the uh, repeated invasions and whatnot. But actually, there's also like there's some Japanese shadow kind of like, hey, we've always been here on the side, right? And we always, and we wanted to come onto the mainland and join you guys by conquering, but we still wanted to come onto the mainland and you wouldn't let us conquer you. How else were we going to be part of this whole community? So I also see that as coming. And yeah, I mean, like, I was wondering, like, if we could get into like, like Japanese and Korean relations and, and, and with, you know, with your, you coming from a Japanese American background and I'm coming from a Korean background and like, just like, it's very like it's very easy for me to like come up with 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 like it's very I'm very relaxed in this 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 sort of conversation because like it's it's one of those things where it's just like you don't realize like what you've been missing until you're actually there because like before like like I if I have like a conversation on race with white people right I I could talk to them a bit about it but there's always a part of me like I can't you know I can't go that you know all be as relaxed and open up as much as I do same thing with black people you know I can have a relationship uh, with black people and talk about you know like the struggles of minorities and and whitey and all of that but there's also part of me like "Eh, no I I can't quite say so but now it's like now that I'm talking with you it's like oh now I could just be like whatever I could talk about you know being being a yellow face and and not (laughs) worried about you know about like how it's gonna come off so yeah, so I was just wondering, like, uh, like, what your thoughts on about Han? Because like you said that that was interesting. I was like, what you thought, like, like, I mean, like, do you see that personified? And for those not aware, I'm sorry, I'm what I'm saying is all over the place, right? So Han is basically like a, a, a uh, it's, you could kind of collapse it as like the Korean shadow of of deep sorrow, which kind of underlies everything we do, which 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 makes us like incredibly competitive, but also leads to us having like the highest suicide rates in the developed world. You know, but also, you know, but like we get this amazing cinema in like this K-pop and we're just spreading it all over the world because, you know, we want to tell the world how awesome we are because of how much we actually hate ourselves, which, you know, because of our, our, our history of like colonial domination, whether it's from the Japanese and the Chinese, the Manchus, the Mongols, and then the United States coming in, our country being torn apart. We're literally at war with ourselves. We hate ourselves. We want to kill ourselves. And then and we're also the plastic surgery capital of the world. Because we just, that's how much we hate ourselves. So I was just wondering uh, what your thoughts on like this whole East Asian dynamic, um, and particularly with uh, like China, Japan, and Korea. Yeah, yeah, where to begin? I mean, I mean, I it's really, <laughs> I think it's really, um, it's really unfortunate, you know, a lot of the historical events that led to this, you know, World War mm-hmm. II. And, and what's, what's very troubling to me is that Japan has kind of had a resurgence of that nationalistic yes, yeah. kind of yeah. thing going on, right? Yeah. I mean, it's got a little bit, of, especially with the, with the imperial history of Japan in World War II, it's a bit of a yikes to start seeing that crop up again. And unfortunately, like my uncle, my, you know, my dad's brother who lives in Tokyo has kind of caught the make Japan great again oh yeah and and you know starts denying that the rape of nanjing ever happened and and it's kind of like holocaust now for like white supremacists Mm. or you know right um and i don't i don't know where that where that comes from but or or if it's just a way to kind of cope with the collective trauma or collective shadow of of all these historical atrocities and you know japan has always been a very tightly knit very ethnically uh, homogeneous and insulated nation 
um, which has, I think, to be honest, I think that has contributed to some of the success Japan has had. Mm-hmm. But there's also a huge shadow in that and a tremendous amount of just intolerance and lack of, you know, integral theory, lack of like a green consciousness other than like environmentalism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. So yeah. thankfully, things are changing. And, and now the schools have more of a, you know, a lot of like a, a hot, you know, mixed mixed race kids yeah. um and so the attitudes are changing but like people like my grandparents who live in a fishing village in the fukui prefecture in japan i mean they're probably like full-on racist you know like like that's just, that's <laughs> really? just the yeah. generation they're like yeah. 80 right and so a lot of those tensions it, it really would be like indistinguishable from it's like a, it's like a time machine going back to like the 40s right mm, yeah. um and they they, they just kind of kept that attitude alive um so yeah, but it was so great for me to read about your 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 beautiful kind of regurgitation, right? That spontaneous, you know, <laughs> the the energy behind the Han thing, like you like you can really feel the tension. I think that that's gone, that's been part of the kind of um, the Korean. I think that one of the differences is, is that I don't think Japan, the beef that Japanese have with other Asian countries is not it's not as a, much of a two way street as the Koreans feel about the Japanese in terms of the real. Mm dislike because the koreans never really fucked the japanese over in the same way that the, the, the opposite happened right i'm losing my voice so um well we did beat your ass with uh with the turtle boats you remember that yeah that's right that's right we kicked, we kicked your yeah. ass with that yeah that was from my favorite video game age of empires too oh um, oh age of empires oh my god I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i think that was when hideyoshi uh invaded korea the unsuccessful uh, invasion, I think, like the 16, 1600s. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I think I think that after after World War II, and I, I like to hear the Korean uh, side of this too, right? After World War II, the Japanese needed to channel their energy, their their collective national spirit or psyche towards something that was not the state, because that's fascism. That was yeah. what happened in World War II. So they redirected the energy to business, and now the person who was like your you know, your, your, uh, I don't know, your Supreme's uh, superior was um, your employer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, and so, and so that, you know, the role that the, your boss has in, in, in Japan is, is really a personal role. It's like you, mm. they'll attend your wedding, right. Or you've officiate yeah, your wedding yeah. and like, there's a very, and there's a sense it's changing a lot now in Japan, but there's always been a real sense of loyalty to your job. Like this is your religion basically. Yeah. Uh, or, or like a family and so um i it's an interesting thing about like uh, uh i want to ask you about han and like in the korean psyche like what in terms of channeling or even um sublimating a lot of these hurt feelings or or historical traumas what was the target they were directed to consciously or unconsciously right like what 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 mm. was the what was galvanizing the korean identity pushing off of what contrasting with what mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, like um, the way I interpret it is, again, I think it's just the constant domination It's the constant um, humiliation. And it's just the inferiority complex is really because we have a deep infer- that that's really what it is. You know, that, and that, I spoke about that in, in the post is it's the inferiority complex. It's like Koreans like this is why like Kore- there's no one. There's probably no like other group in the world that push is such a try hard and kind of like, like proselytizing how awesome they are with a K cinema, K pop, you know, K dramas. They always love K case cuisine, 
K everything. It's like they love doing this. It's just they they love and and like and they're also you know like 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 avid learners, but not like not even just like you know not even just like in school, but like you know like I heard about like for example like I used to work for like a like a French a French bakery like the top one like in the area right, and then uh, the French uh, the, the 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 chefs were from Paris. And they told me that like over there, like the people, who, the, the people that they see in, in the classes trying to learn about French cuisine, about the French pastries the most, is like people from Korea. It's just like, they just love learning and they love kind of mixing it with their own thing. And then kind of like, just like, kind of like just transporting it, exporting it to the world. And it comes down to, and a part of it is like this sort of, again, this, this, these millennia of like getting our ass beat and never, never having like our own sovereignty and like just getting, you know, and, and then again, and then talking about identity again, like we became, we went from Korea to North and South Korea mm-hmm. because of the pull of the, because of the superpowers, you know, like kind of, you know, kind of like throwing us into a ring, kind of like cockfighting with each other. And, it, and it's just like, where is our sovereignty? Like, how do we control our destiny? We don't have the soft, we don't, we don't have the hard power. So what we do is we use soft power with all this different mm-hmm. stuff. So that's what's driving it. Like all this export of all this media. It's like, that's why like, this is interesting. Like, I remember like a few years ago, like when K-pop, you know, like after Gangnam Style and all that, like, like I don't think it's a coincidence that Gangnam, Gangnam Style was Korean, right? It's like, it's just like that, that, that hard, like, and, 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 and the thing about a Gangnam Style and size music, right? It, it's, it's basically a, a ripoff of uh, LMFAO. Remember all that stuff? Like, remember all? Do you remember LMFL? Like, uh, but you do you know do you know what I'm talking about? The um, it's just it's, it's that club music. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. It's just like um, I forgot what it's called, but it was like it was like it was basically a complete ripoff of LMFAO, which is doing big in the United States. He took that, he put the Korean Han into it, right? Yeah. And then it just exploded. And like, not coincidentally, like literally less than a year after Gangnam Style came out, LMFAO stopped doing music. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, like that's, that's what happened. It's just like, that goes into it. It's like K-pop. And I remember uh, going back to the topic, I read a, a, a comment. It was, it was a K-pop, it was a K-pop versus J-pop video. Like, like I watched it, right? Because, because like back then I was like, oh my God, Korean people. It's like, again, this inferiority complex, right? Like, and there's still a part of me that's there, but like for a long time, like I had this really, really bad complex, not with just being Korean, Korean American, but just being Asian, East Asian in general. And so what I would do to boost my self-confidence, I would go and check out all the Asian Korean stuff that's doing well. So I go into this K-pop or J-pop video and they're like, eh, this K-pop thing, it's going to be whatever. Why, you know, wait until a few years until... You know, uh, until like China figures out how to copy the K-pop model, and then C-pop is gonna take over. Well, last thing I checked is 2020, and no one gives a shit about C-pop, and that's that's the thing. It's because it's coming from this Han. It's what drives us, and that's why I referred to in um, my post I made that Koreans got like they re- have been referred to as the Jews of Asia, right? It's like it's this this this, this Han, this drive, this. This again, and like there's another parallel with like the 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 the, the mandatory military drafting in mm. Israel, you know, mil- mandatory military service in Israel, mandatory military service in South Korea. So there, and, and the, why do we have the mandatory military service? Because our our, our countrymen are trying to kill us, <laughs> you know, because they're you know we've been egged down by the superpower. So again, this is like existential drive, right? And yeah, so like again, like all this thing, like which we hate ourselves. 
we're, 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 you know, we're on the brink of extinction at all times, right? We're, we're, Japan's right over here. North Korea is right over there. China's right over there. And it's just like, what the hell are we going to do? And they're just like, that's what's making Koreans do this thing. And that's quite possibly what's helping drive my thing. And maybe it's not a coincidence that, you know, like the one, like the one like person who's like, in the quote unquote sense making space. I don't know how you want to refer to me, a steward, caretaker. That happens to be, you know, like a, a Korean dude. I mean, I mean, obviously you're part of this and there are other East Asians in around here, but like specifically like embedded within the sense making space is like maybe that's what's driving me is because of that, Han. So yeah, that's my perspective on it. Wow, wow. <clears throat> yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. You know, it, the, the Jewish analogy is interesting to me because I think when you look at, different, you know, the history of different civilizations, the ones that have been embodied in that liminal space have, have usually have had a rough time. Like for mm -hmm. example, or, yeah. or even today have some major, are implicated in some major world conflict, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at, for example, like with Alexander Dugan's thing on Russia and, and the Eurasian identity exactly. that he's trying yeah. to go for. Russia mm -hmm. is, you know, it's like, are we, are we European? No, we don't, we're, we're, we're pushing off against the Europeanness, right? So are we, there's kind of like the Asian Mongolian side of the, you know, the Eastern, you know, um, the, uh, of, of uh, Siberia and right. And so it's like, well, what are we, you know, doing here? And then you go South to like the more like Muslim parts. And then you start getting into like areas like the Middle East, for example, where it's like, again, it's between, it's like, well, are we, you know, Asian, are we, are we, you know, the West, or are we kind of in the middle? And, and so whenever a country or a civilization is in that liminal zone between mighty established <clears throat> east west or whatever you know empires like the jews constantly going on the, the history of the jewish uh, diaspora yeah, yeah and so it's like it's like to find your identity can be more difficult or 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 can be there's more angst behind it there's that yeah. con there's that kind of like mm, right mm. driving that and um i i think the, the japanese unfortunately they, they've always had the you know the superiority complex in both yes. Koreans, right and so it's yeah. kind of like this kind of looking down and I think that in some ways, you know, especially after um, World War II, you know, J Japan was humiliated and, and they had to go through their process of rebuilding, but then quickly had the Japanese miracle and became really the, you know, at, at least until the 90s, their, their economic yeah. trajectory was, was, you know, uh, unprecedented in the world yeah. and, and was right behind the United States until they had their, uh, their um, inflation and housing. I think it was like the... Uh, you know, their bubble and the crash and like the, the somewhere in the 90s right yeah and so and so they, their economic growth has been pretty stagnated since then for various reasons but there there is a sense of like the japanese they're kind of like established like there's there isn't like that the han that the koreans have that you're describing it, it doesn't it, it that kind of petered out yeah, um exactly. early yeah, on definitely. because of how they kind of they kind of got comfortable in in the in the setup of being mm. an economic superpower and finding their own kind of international economic identity, exporting, you know, cars and, you know, everything the Japanese market, although now you guys are like beating us in the car market even, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but so, it, yeah, um, I mean, let me ask you this though. Do you think the Korean, the Korean sense of identity and, and, and it is less nationalistic than Japan? Or is there still a, a, a you know, for South Korea, is there still like a mm. strong, Kind of national flavor or is the competition Han more of like an individual level of competitiveness mm, well i mean like i would say uh, i would say it's a both I, I guess i'll give it a both and because like there is that like when we we're, we're, we're very fiercely 
Korea, Korea, Korea. Uh, it's coming from a place, and, and I, it's coming from a place of weakness. Like I mentioned in my post on um, about Han, it's like I see parallels, kind of like with like uh, other countries, like like uh, like like Poland, right? Like whenever I see like Polish people being really nationalistic, you can see them desperately saying Polska, Polska, yeah, Poland is awesome. Even though you got your ass beat, like you know, all the time, <laughs> it's just like I, like I, I, I could sense it. I could sense this feeling. It's like, oh my god, it's like we're awesome. You know, we want to believe. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So there is a part of that, and again, and again, it's just like, and but it's also internal. Like the South Korean like competitive drive, it's insane. Which is why, again, we have the highest suicide rates in the developed world. Like it is insane. Like people. Like, like I hear about it from like, you know, like the Korean relatives and like, you know, people who I talk to who live in South Korea. It's like, they're constantly like, if someone says like, if someone says, mm, oh yeah, my kid did this and this, what's the reaction to that? Your friend tells you how awesome their kids are doing. Like, oh yeah. It's like, shit. It's just like, you know, it's just like, it, it's like, oh, it's kind of seen it as an attack on them, you know? So everyone's mm-hmm. trying to be better and better, which is why we're constantly, we're, we're overachievers. We're tryhards, you know, like, Joe Rogan constantly talks about uh, on, on the, his podcast, his friend, I forgot his name, but he his, his Taekwondo friend, he was talking about, he's the, he's, the, he's the hardest working dude he's ever heard in his life. He was right, like trying to, right. he was doing like pre-med. He was like doing like, studying for this. He was doing like karate tournaments. He was like a national level champion and he was getting like five hours of sleep and he would just be like a zombie, just, just walking. He was just a walking zombie yet he was still accomplishing. It's like, it's, it's that drive. And um, there's like, um, there's this sort of a, a, a mindset. It's called the Bali Bali framework. Bali, like Bali means means fast. It's like Bali Bali Bali, fast 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 fast. Which which happened right after you know, like after the Korean War, the country's devastated. So how do we build Bali 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 Bali? Go 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 go. And we didn't care about safety. We didn't care about people's feelings. We didn't care about nothing. We we're just go go go. So. I do. This is definitely, this is, there is this nationalistic framework coming from a place of inferiority, you know, uh, you know, outwardly, but there's also inwardly like, yeah, we're definitely at odds with each other. And this sort of tension, this creates greatness. At the same time, you have people who can't handle it. They, they end it, they drop out of society and whatnot. Yeah. So there's, this definitely, there's pros and cons to this. And I don't know in the future, Maybe, maybe in the future we'll we'll progress this. Perhaps uh, as an as a nationality, progress to another stage, another developmental stage, uh, which perhaps we are. I mean, actually, I actually mentioned this in, in the post. We are under a military dictatorship until 1988, the Seoul Olympics. It's not a coincidence that right, you know, at the year of the Seoul Olympics, we got rid of our our, our dictatorship because, like, hey, everyone's watching us. Get the hell out of here. Let's bring in quote unquote democracy, whatever that is. Since then, 1988. We elected a female president. We impeached the female president, and we <laughs> and then we replaced her. So this is like the rate of like change that we're we're doing in America and in, in South Korea. And then within like, and then we're like a few steps like in a province in South Korea actually instituted UBI since the start of COVID. And the politician behind the UBI uh, initiative is actually you know planning on a presidential run. So we're maybe a, perhaps, uh, you know, a presidential, a presidential election away from actually instituting the first UBI for a country in, in, the, in the world. So like, yeah, so again, like this is like, yeah, this competitive drive is like this Han is what's, I believe, driving all of this. So that's my take on that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> that would be awesome. It, 
if if uh, Korea has their first UBI, I mean that would be, be I'd be really interesting to see to see how that. I mean, well, do you know the economist named Ha Jun Chang? Yes, yes. Uh, his I saw his study his series on like new economic thinking or something like that. I watched his entire thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love him. Yeah, and he you know he's a critique of capitalism. And uh, or, or that's kind of one of his main. Uh, he has a book called like Twenty Three Minutes of Capitalism yeah. or something. And he talks about how you know South Korea is that that hyper competitive Han, very very capitalistic <clears throat> to the bone. Yeah. And I think UBI can really soften that a little bit, you know, yeah, or at least or at least provide a little bit of cushioning economically for people where that may create under you know that could create a bit of a cultural shift or something. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it does kind of like go with a kind of like the Marxist line of thought. I guess it's like you know, capitalism will inevitably like kind of eat itself mm -hmm. and then lead to something like a UBI and beyond that. Um, uh, but the thing is like, I do like, for the thing about UBI, like I, I see that as a stopgap to something beyond that. Like, again, I've mentioned before, uh, like the, I, like the, the best uh, frame that I, I've heard is um, the universal basic assets uh, proposed mm -hmm. by Douglas Rushkoff. Because the thing about UBI is like, yeah, UBI is great. The consumers have money to buy, but who are they going to buy its stuff? From the big oligopolists, you know, from, from these tech giants, you know, who still live in this capitalistic framework where they're 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 they're, they're the ones running everything, and it's it's a very it's, it's it's kind of the retention of the colonials mindset where it's like okay, you can buy, yeah, well we'll give you money to buy, but you have to buy from us. So yeah, so I'm definitely and I see that moving beyond that. I I don't know if you want to start going into like where where you see us going. Like what, like maybe politically, sociopolitically, with going from capitalism and like a post-capitalist society. Wow! Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I, I read that article by uh, Rushkoff. I mean, my question, in, in principle, I'm, I'm, I think he's totally right in the sense that we need to look deeper than, than mere money or, or subsistence wages, even if it's universal and and just getting a check in the mail, right? Mm. To uh, ownership structures. Yeah, yeah. And and the real, you know. They, like you can you can have a UBI and, and that could hold people over, but it's kind of like crumbs when the oligarchs are still making you know like Jeff Bezos making thirteen billion dollars yeah, a day, exactly. right? And so it doesn't really get to the underlying root of the structure of capitalism that creates all inequality to begin with. And I'm totally for that in principle. I have you know and Rushkoff doesn't really lay out the details of what that would look mm, like or how yeah. we would transition there. And that's that's always my question, right? Is yeah you can have a more of like a worker co-op model where, you know, in a Marxist perspective, right, the workers are owning the means of production. So you have a democratization of the workplace and, and somehow the, the work, workers, uh, worker interests and, and stakeholders are more locally within the company instead of being dictated by the abstract forces of, you know, global capital and market flows where bankers and investors are, are creating the flow of capital that dissociate that creates worker alienation mm. um and that i can see how that works on a local level there are some technical challenges with issues of um not being able to get loans from banks to start up these these kind of firms uh, but i i can see that happening but on a on a bigger scale if we want to continue with our current system of um you know with publicly traded companies like is there a way to bring workers to me is there, is there a way to you know, more, um, create more equality in everyone being able to own shares of any company, even if you don't work for the company. Mm. So there, there is kind of a difference and there are other techniques like, uh, or methods like uh, baby bonds, you know, Robert Reich has this idea of like a nest egg where everyone just gets a certain share from birth. And it basically, it's kind of mm, like yeah, a yeah. 401k or IRA for all. 
Yeah. You know, and so that that's a little different though from the more of the worker co-op model, which is more of like workers locally owning the business. And so it doesn't, it's not, it's no longer a publicly traded company, right? Mm, yeah. So maybe, maybe something, maybe a little bit of both. And then you have, and then all the workers can also still get shares for other companies that are not um, democratized in the same way. So I don't know, maybe like a combination. There, there's some other methods I've looked into, but again, I've never seen one really clear way to make that happen where I was like, I would have full confidence of running with that if I was like, if I was a politician pushing for that idea. I don't know. What, what do you, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, yeah. I mean, like, again, like I, I don't have a framework. I don't know who, who actually has a real like workable framework, at least as of yet, though, like people are uh, experimenting. I mean, like the, the, the term that I love throwing around because it just seems like it, 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 it just, it just seems the most eloquent or at least the sexiest is fully automated luxury communism. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, okay, once we could get technology, like, you know, again, like this is how like this goes along with the Marxist point of view is like capital is going to eat itself. It's like, okay, driving, driving lower, lower costs, you know, what does that do? That means, okay, we got to bring in machines. And then it's like, so the, the every, so not everything, but we're going to have automated pretty much this, that, and the other. And then instead of, you know, pushing for lower and lower costs for everything and being like, okay, eventually it's going to get to the point where it's like, okay, if we, if society as a whole, me owns the machines, owns the means of production. It's very much like, you know, like has universal basic assets. They have a right since birth to, you know, the, 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 the profits or, or the value that's generated by the machines, then it could be something like that. And like, again, I, I like this. I like, I really enjoy this more grounded approach, which is kind of like one of my uh, critiques with more conventional game B thinking where it's like, Oh, what we're going to do is we're just going to exit to a proto B and we're going to have like a little, a, li a little society over here. And it's just like, you know, but it's like, how can it be more grounded? And what I found in uh, my research, which, which I don't know if you're, if that's still um, one of your goals is that your dream is to start the world's first integral political party and even launch a campaign to be what maybe the first integral president. So uh, first thing that popped up is Yang, right? And it's like, Yang is actually, I think Yang actually has a lot of momentum for 2024. I don't know if this country even exists by that point, right? I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I'm honestly wondering about that. So I'm just wondering, um, is that still something you think about? And like, uh, what is inspiring you? And what's driving you to kind of go with that if you're still uh, going on that trajectory? Sure. It was, it was a very bold, very ambitious uh, kind of proposal or idea that I've had. And yeah, I think Yang, I mean, I, I was a huge supporter of Yang uh in the primary and um he now he kind of looks like a prophet pushing for the ubi and the, i know and right pandemic and everyone's exactly. like oh yeah that's a great idea right um and, and you know post post uh campaign he's been doing a lot of great work on his, on his podcast and he's probably one of my yeah. favorite you know mainstream politicians but my my idea of the the integral metamodern you know game b sense making political movement or campaign and i'll just say too it's a shame because jim rutt talks about you know his emancipation party yeah yeah and he's like oh young people were interested i'm like what the hell if that was <laughs> around right now i would be like so into that right mm, yeah, so it's yeah. a shame that that kind of fell off for whatever reason but you know my my idea was twofold and it's, it's similar to my idea with um focusing on race as such a controversial issue and then therefore kind of leveraging that into a social acupuncture point. Mm. Uh, politics is obviously the same thing where a lot of people in the sense-making community feel politics is so broken and there's such a cynicism that the best idea is to create this 
you know, adjacent attractor and make an orthogonal leap to a completely yeah. new paradigm that circumvents the existing completely broken system. There's a lot of merit to that. <clears throat> but mm. my, my, my position is number one, um, we can't get away from politics, right? It's like, if you really want to create your little utopia, it's like, well, where are you going to go? That's still within the boundaries of some nation state yeah. that's going to be yeah. affected by policy, right? So we better, we better make sure that from the top-down level, even though we, even from a complexity perspective, we understand that top-down solutions may be limited in some way, that can't be overlooked. Someone's always being implicated and, and everything's always political to someone or to mm. some group. So it's good to be mindful of that. And even if you don't win, if we run for office or whatever, I still think that if you campaign creatively enough like Yang, yes. that can also generate a cultural revolution and mm. build community around really innovative, really creative outside the box ways of thinking about politics and systems change that can have more of a mainstream impact. And what really excites me is there's a lot of jargon in all of these communities where all these sense-making communities were part yeah, of. Yeah. How can we translate them into a language where the average normie person can understand and relate yes, to their reality. Yeah. And, and I think that's, to me, politics kind of symbolically represents building that bridge and stepping outside the bubble and maybe a natural flowering of, of the sense-making movement once it's reached a mature enough level to start reaching out, right? I don't know mm -hmm. if that'll ever happen. And I've also met a lot of people who don't even think that's a good idea. But for me, it's more, it's not so much like this is what I think is the best idea. It's more just, this is what I'm passionate about and I can't not think about it, right? Mm. So, so that's kind of how I've been thinking about it and then dreaming yeah. it, dreaming it up. Yeah, so I mean, like, I think, I mean, this, this, this jives perfectly what we were talking about, about how like, you know, Asians, East Asians can be that bridge, that kind of emissary between all these different groups because Yang is like, like, what, like Yang's campaign, right? It was just like, he like, like, like the biggest supporters, like he was talking about like not left, not right, forward. It's kind of like what you're doing not woke, not colorblind, diaphanous, right? It's, 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 the same, it's the same thing. And then when I saw like Yang's, like the Yang supporters, so many of them were like people from like, I was a former Trump supporter. But when I heard Yang talk about, he actually cares about us. He's not just looking at us as like a fly out, flyover state, as like just white trash, you know, all this stuff. Like, you know, that like, you know, the traditional, uh, you know, the liberal, uh, you know, uh, politics has turned into, you know, with a, with a shaming all the, the right and all that. It's just like, he, he was really bridging them together. And as you stated, when you talk about, you know, like speaking like, you know, like English instead of gobbledygook, you know, it was just like, he was actually, you know, he was actually speaking to them. He was actually translating that. And I, I mean, there was, a, there's a part of me that like, like there's, I guess the more like purist, uh, uh, maybe radical part of me that was thinking like, you know, like Yang is like, there, it's like, you're, I like what he's saying, bringing these ideas, these new ideas, well, new to the mainstream point of view uh, that like you know like like the ubi and so all that stuff and it's like but there's still part of me it's like eh, you're still a little mainstream yang he's like you're, you're using all these mainstream points but when i actually look at it in, in in the long game it's like that's it like if he wasn't like he's the one you know again you talked about him possibly being as a prophet where you know with covid happening with ubi it's just like you know, like, again, like he did not become, you know, the candidate for 2020. Of course, he was partly because of the mainstream media conspiracy against him. I mean, let's be real. I mean, everyone has pretty admitted, pretty much admitted. Yang even said, like, this is happening right now. But it's just like, uh, I mean, like the, 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 the stuff that it may happen if we get through the next four years and possibly 2024. 
I mean, like before, like I remember when I, I first came across him, like I believe maybe 2017 or something. I was like, oh, look, it's just like, you know, this Asian guy running for president. I was like, whatever. But now I'm just like, honestly, 2024, if he's at the if we get to that point playing the long game, which, quite frankly, I think uh, we do pretty well as a, as, as a group. I think he has a decent chance. So, I mean, like, I mean, like, I think that's very interesting. And again, I, I see him embodying the, 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 the bridge roll. And it's just like, you're doing the bridge roll. And then I'm doing the bridge roll. Like we're all literally doing that right now. That's, I mean, like, yeah. So I just think that's really interesting how that's actually playing out. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and someone made the comment too, that if Trump won the election, Yang would have, may have had a better chance to win in 2024. Mm, right, because he yeah. he won't he may not run as president given that uh, Biden or or Kamala would be the incumbent Democratic president. Mm, yeah. Um. But you know, I I do think that yeah the the whole the whole bridge role is something I'm I'm just really passionate about and excited mm. about and and how could politics be in some ways even more than policy right because it is more than policy and if we're already entangled with all of these crazy cultural issues and culture wars, where someone who really was able to take the mimetic mediation skills and apply that in the political mm, realm yeah. and to make that an attractor and build a community around that and launch the cultural movement that way instead of being in our own little echo chambers, which are wonderful right now. But mm, I'm always, yeah. I'm always, I always get so like antsy, antsy, you know, or like just feeling, how do I, how do I bring this out there more? How do I connect with more mainstream movements outside yeah. of sense-making spaces? And, and, you know, luckily being a mediator and being in the, the mediation field, and profession a, a lot of mediation organizations have really been doing a lot of promoting a lot of stuff that peter and rebel wisdom and integral theory has been been talking about right is um you know doing more mimetic mediation in their own way mm. and taking the skills out into the streets basically which is which is what i'm really excited to try to do and and you know what better way to do to do that what better excuse to to do that with than to run for office and knock on people's doors and, and talk to people and and uh, build a community around um, systems and political change that that's really you know up to date with what how it should be instead of this totally ass backwards crazy shit show that we have right now. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, and it's like this is something that I, I realized that like the, uh, this mimetic mediation thing, and the, the the moment I think about mimetic mediation, I think about Peter Lindbergh and the Stella, right? It's like you know, part, part of his, his long game is to get all these tribes together, but the the Stella is more so again, it takes the meta role of like just bringing them together and kind of like you know, again, it just kind of like and then like incubating psycho technologies, right? But not actually playing the active role. Of, of going out like it's 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 like bringing them in but it's not like necessarily embodying them and going outward and that's what i see kind of like what my myself doing or at least you know attempting to do and of course what, what you're trying to do is like okay we're trying to like we we got this and then we're actually going to do it which is why like uh I'm, I'm i'm going from my event tomorrow right it's called the next generation of sense makers and change makers because again, you can make all the sense you want, right? And like, you know, there's a lot of people who like can stay in their head. Um, yeah, I'm gonna make sense all day. I don't understand. It's like they could do this. You know, they go to eight thousand Zoom sessions and they just like, oh yeah, I'm making sense. I'm making sense. Okay, but why are you making sense? Like, what are you making sense? Of? Why? He's like, what are you gonna do? You know, with this sense that you've made. It, again, it, really I see, yeah. it really doesn't make any sense. 
<laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It's like sense, you know, again, again, this has been thrown out all the time. It's mental mas- masturbation. It's just like, you're not, you're not producing. You're not, you know, you're not fucking, you know, you're creating something. You're, you're, you know, you're doing this all day. But, you know, again, that's what I see myself doing. And like, I'm glad that you're doing the same. So, yeah, I mean, awesome. <laughs> I mean, just amazing conversation. And like, um, I'm just wondering um, like if you have any uh, thoughts for the audience. I mean, this has been awesome. We went over, you know, Japanese-Korean relations, about how Asians can play that role because of mediators, of bridges in the, in the liminal space and how we want to go out in the world and your DAR framework, which I think is very interesting. I saw that was your first Medium post you made, right? It's got, yeah. a, it was released 10 days ago and it's already got over a hundred claps. A hundred claps is pretty good for your first medium post, right? In like oh, oh is that? I don't, I don't know the, <laughs> well, what's like the, yeah, you know. Yeah, I just checked today, 105 claps. That's, I mean, like for someone who just literally just started like a week ago, that's pretty awesome. So again, like I would love to bring this out to the world because I mean, I think that's a really good framework. Something that goes beyond this, this bipolar view of woke versus colorblind. So, I mean, I just wonder if you had any uh, closing thoughts for our audience and what you want them to take away from this. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Albert. Mm. This was this was a really fun. And what I really appreciate about talking or talking about today and, and also talking to you about specifically was I think we were probably, if I can recall, the, or, or, or as far as I know, maybe the first, you know, p- conversation or podcast episode in a sense-making space where we explicitly talked about race and racial identity and mm. specifically about, you know, being Asian. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are, there are more, you know, percentage wise, more Asians in these communities than any other at race. And I was, I was tempted mm. to reach out to Peter and ask if he wanted to do a STOA session, exploring everything we talked about today in regards to like Asians and culture wars and mm. mimetic mediation. And yeah. so um, I guess the final thing I'll say to the, to the audience, to whoever's watching is, you know, if people, if there are any Asians watching this <laughs> uh, and, and people wanted to continue the conversation around mm. this topic, I would, I would love to do that. Um, and just to, just to kind of coalesce a little like uh, Asian sense making kind of, I, not, not, to, not to be, you know, kind of go against my entire diaphanous kind of uh, race essentialism or whatever, tribalism or whatever, but I, I would just be curious to see, um, if, if people were interested in this and, and I, and my position, right. Is I, I think that some people are afraid of, of specific explicitly acknowledging uh, race and, and racial identity for, yeah. for good reasons. And yeah. I completely understand, right. That's what I kind of warned about in, in the article, but um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I, I like to lean into it more now that we've started this conversation, maybe they'll get mm-hmm. the ball rolling. So I uh, mm-hmm. hope to hope to hear from anyone. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that definitely resonates and it's just like, it, it is. It is. It's a. It is. It's a tricky. It's a tricky topic, right? It's. It's very right. complex. You know, you can't just be like, "Hey, let's do this and that." It's like, eh, we gotta, you know, find our way around it. And actually, um, I had an interaction recently, uh, with a certain uh, former prominent Game B member, uh, about possibly starting something, uh, regarding, you know, you know, uh, underrepresented groups, you know, in the the sense making space. So yeah, there is definitely there are definitely people out there you know, you know, who like us and not just specifically, you know, like Japanese or Korean or whatnot, but, you know, just like our voices are not being heard and perhaps incubating it. Right. Cause here's the thing, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's just it, like, when you have like, I mean, this is the thing, but safe spaces gets a really bad rap, right. right you know, the whole right. term, the whole concept because of 
how it's implemented and by, I guess, the, the, the radical, like, I don't even know what to call them, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, you know, the whole trigger warning crowd, like that crowd, right? right? And it's just like, they want to be protected at all times and they want to vilify everyone like you're attacking me. The, but the way I see it, like there is, like there has to be, in order for like groups to, to for everyone to come into their fullness, uh, especially when they're part of any of, any sort of group is like there has to be some sort of like semi-permeable membrane we're just like okay we can be here we don't have to worry about being attacked for this that and the other right we don't have to be like we don't have to like put on a front we could just be here we could be ourselves and we could talk openly like you and I, you know, about something like race, about something from the, you know, from the Asian, the East Asian, the Korean, Japanese American context, and not have to do it from like this fake frame where it's just like, oh, you know, I have to talk with white people about race in a certain way, or talk about black people about race in a certain way. Like we can actually talk about it in a more embodied, real, honest way. And from that comes more, you know, productive conversations, which we can then come out of our semi-permeable membrane and then perhaps, you know, you know, interact with the world in a more full and, you know, a more whole place and contribute mm -hmm. to, you know, a more integrated, uh, you know, community. So I'm told totally with that. Yeah. And th that's amazing, uh, Ryan. So again, thank you so much for coming on. And it has been amazing. Again, the first exclusively yellow face episode in the sense making community. Watch this. Rewind it. Send it to all your people. This is what it's all about. So I uh, hope that's put in a parentheses in the title there, Albert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, what? With the yellow face? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh -huh. but you know, yeah. but just just really quickly too. I mean, uh, that was that was a beautiful you know steel manning of the safe space thing. But you know, from my perspective too, it's kind of like a Japanese thing of being polite to the group. Where I think when you're talking about a lot of identity specific issues, especially minority identity issues. Mm. A lot, a lot of people are just not interested, and it's not, mm. it's not, there's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not, you don't experience what that group experience. Of course, that's yeah. not going to be very interesting. And so it's just a way of like getting a more specific conversation that people are welcome to join, but also being mindful that if people are not interested, then um, that they don't have to join. And so it's not like I don't have to worry about like taking up airtime talking about something that no one else wants to talk about. Mm, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so yeah. beautiful. Thank you so much, brother. This is this is fantastic. Yeah, awesome. Okay, again, so where can people find out more about the great Ryan Nakade, uh, Dar, and all the amazing work you're doing? Oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm on um, a lot of social media. So like uh, the growing down episodes were on Jeremy Johnson's uh, uh, YouTube channel. This is Jeremy Johnson, and then the growing down episodes are all on there on his YouTube channel. Um, I'm on Facebook at Ryan Nakade and Twitter at Nakade Ryan. And uh, my one medium, my one and only <laughs> medium. Piece a pretty, on the pr pretty awesome debut, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Got it. Yeah. I'll link all that in the show notes. Everyone definitely check them out. I mean, if look, if you came out with one medium post and it's like that, I mean, imagine what happens with the second or third. So again, check them out. I mean, amazing stuff from Ryan. And that's it for another episode of Nordic Nomads. Peace out, everyone, and step up because the world needs you. Okay, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Alrighty, and we are done.